Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Sound is incredibly important and we can learn a lot by studying it in animals. Now we know sound and music can help ease pain, especially in animals and humans as well. But physically, what is actually happening and is it got a real tangible or measurable effect? Plus we find out about how bats can be trained to remember good and bad ringtones and what that might mean for bats' ability to process long-term memories relating to sound. Now, music serves a pretty valuable purpose in humankind, but also in an animal kingdom. There's bird song, the tales and the stories in the classic literature from all kinds of cultures talk about the healing, often, power of music, the ability to, for it to soothe even the wildest beasts and also the wild humans. And since the 1960s, there have been some studies which show that music and other kinds of sound can even have an alleviating effect on acute and chronic pain, even to the extent of pain from, say, dental surgery or perhaps even labour and delivery. Of course, how the brain actually produces this actual pain reduction, analgesia, well, we haven't really found any definitive information there. Those studies, as I've talked about, even back from the 60s or in modern times, have really been showing an association, you know, some association between music-induced analgesia and pain reduction, but not actually uh, any real concrete evidence of why this is happening, or if it's happening in a tangible effect, or there's some correlation there that we don't understand. And that's what researchers from the National Institutes of Health, as well as a number of universities in China, including the University of Science Technology in Haifei, Anhui Medical University, and so on, collaborated on in a paper published in the journal Science. Now, lead author on this paper was Wen Xu Zhao, and a large list of collaborators on this international project. But what they were investigating is using music and the presence of music, or maybe not even just music, but white noise, and see if they can find an actual way that it, it changes pain reception in animals. And what they did for this was first expose mice to some sign of injury. In this case, they had them with inflamed paws. And then with these mice with some injury, some pain level sensation there in the background, they exposed them to some noise. In the first case, they actually played them some nice, pleasing classical music. Now, of course, this is pleasing if you're familiar with the cultural context of classical music, which you may not be. And so they also played an unpleasant rearrangement of the same piece. And they also tried just plain old white noise, static, if you will. Now, surprisingly, what they saw is that, well, <laughs> the type of music didn't make a difference. Because, of course, what would Mouse know about, you know, the sounds of European classical music? Well, nothing at all. And in fact, what they saw is well, as long as they played some type of sound uh, at a low intensity relative to background noise. Imagine someone whispering. That was sufficient enough for the mice to have reduced pain sensitivity. If you amped up that music and increased its volume, well, there wasn't any real amazing re more further reduction in pain. But just by having some small amount of background music was enough for there actually to be a reduction in pain response from the animals. Now, of course, if you see something with a reduction effect, you obviously immediately want to try and turn up the volume to see if you can make it have more of a reduction effect. But actually, 
the fact that it didn't make a difference in some ways shows that there's some underlying process in place here happening inside the brain circuitry. It was nothing to do with the context of the sound or the perceived pleasantness of the sound, just actually any sound at all. And that really puzzled researchers. So to really dive into this, they needed to trace through the brain circuitry. And that's not necessarily easy to do, even in a mice model. So to really explore the brain circuitry to track this effect, they took a non-infectious virus and they coupled it with some fluorescent proteins. This is a common method used to try and trace signal pathways, and that's exactly what they did, looking at the paths between different regions of the brain in this mice model. And what they saw is there was a route between the auditory cortex, the area of the brain which is responsible for receiving and processing all kinds of information about sound. So this is a pretty important region, the auditory cortex, for anything to do with music or noise. So they saw there was a connection point between that the auditory cortex, and the thalamus, which is like the full-on relay station processing all kinds of sensory signals. Now, in many cases, the thalamus is routing signals from all over your body, and this includes, but is not limited to, of course, pain. So pain sensations coming through from your body pass through the thalamus, and there's a connection, naturally, as one would expect, between the auditory cortex, the sound processing region of the brain, and the thalamus. Now, in freely moving mice, what they saw with low intensity white noise reduced the activity of neurons at the receiving end of the pathway in the thalamus. So basically, when they played the white noise, well, the thalamus region of the mice's brain sort of calmed down a little bit, or, or rather reduced just in general the activity of the neurons in that region. Now, in the absence of sound, if you try to suppress that pathway area in the thalamus, maybe with some light or molecule-based techniques to like blunt this out, it sort of mimicked almost the effect of a pain blunting that they saw with the, the low measurement of noise. And then if you switch back on that pathway through some other intervention mechanisms, the animal's pain sensitivity was restored. This is crazy to think about because basically what they're showing is that if you, if you block off this pathway, then the pain receptive signals don't get really well through from the regions all over the mice's body to the brain. And if you play white noise, well, <laughs> it has basically the same effect. This is nuts to think about, but makes a lot of sense that basically the sound is sort of filling that channel and blocking or taking all the space that pain signals would otherwise come through. This is pretty amazing to think about, but this is of course only in a mice model. Now, of course, you have to track and see how the brain works, particularly the connections between the auditory complex and the thalamus in humans, and that is to be done. But as an understanding of how music can have an impact on felt pain or perceived pain, this is a proof of concept that at least happens in mice or mice models to show that yes, music can sometimes block or drown out signals of pain otherwise taken up by your brain. If you have nice music playing and your brain is busy processing that music, well, it doesn't have a lot of time or bandwidth to process the other signals, which might be pain. So it tells to dumb it out a little bit. Now, it doesn't even have to be pleasant music. White noise will just do the same thing. But it's an interesting example of how our brains are limited. They do amazing and incredible things. But, well, it still has a limited capacity, just like taking up all the bandwidth on your local 
internet connection by streaming a lot of 4K movies at once, well, you can't get as much through. And this is basically what's happening in the regions of the brain. When a lot of auditory processing is taking place, what they saw in the mice was, well, it wasn't able to really process pain signals as well. Now, of course, we don't know if mice enjoy white noise or enjoy static or human music, but perhaps also that pleasant feeling, if exposed in the case of humans, also helps in distract the humans from it. But we're looking purely here at a physiological response, not the pleasantness experience, which I guess if you played someone white noise or played them a song that they actually like, well, probably they probably feel soothed by the one they like as well. But purely on a physiological and signal processing level, just the presence of sound in general will have some benefit in mice. Now we have to see if the same mechanism exists in humans, but it's a great first step in trying to dive into this concept of how music can tangibly affect what we feel in terms of pain in our bodies. A great paper published in the journal Science. Lead author was Wen Zhao and a long list of collaborators from this international project with the National Institute of Health in the US, as well as universities in Haifa in China. So when it comes to things with good ears and hearing really well, and if you want to study something with really complex sensing and cognitive abilities, there's no better place to turn than bats, because of course, the use of echolocation makes them absolutely fascinating to study, and they have really interesting avenues in their brains to investigate. Plus, they're also smart and intelligent enough to be used for all kinds of cognitive studies. And that's what researchers from the University of Texas in Austin, like biologist M. May Dixon, her team, just, she just finished her PhD, and have published in the journal Current Biology. Because they've been investigating how bats can learn and remember sounds in particular over really extended periods of time. Now, why would a bat want to remember sounds? Well, for a bat, sound is pretty much everything. Instead of visually recognizing something, for them, auditory recognition is really, really important. Because it means when they're hunting frogs, which are there, for example, for a frog-eating bat, which is the purpose, focus of this study, the Trakops kirohosus, their main food source, if they remember which frogs taste good and which frogs taste bad or are poisonous, it's really important for them. Now, in fact, you know, if they hear a frog that's perhaps too big to carry, that's even worse. It's not poisonous and it's not edible, but they can't actually do anything with it. So listening really carefully for these types of bats is absolutely essential. And that means they need to know to recognize a lot of information purely from sound. And of course, retain this information over a long period of time. So May Dixon and her colleagues' idea was to train 49 wild bats to respond to all kinds of sounds, but not just every type of sound. They didn't want to pick sounds that would perhaps be found in the natural environment. So they picked some clearly human-made sounds and would play them, like ringtones, to the bats via speakers. Now, the types of sounds they picked were pretty interesting. They had a two sets of sounds, one reward tone or two two types of reward tones that were used to indicate these were clearly human generated sounds the ping of an incoming text alert or the beep of a car being unlocked really human generated sounds things they wouldn't normally hear out in the wilderness but in comparison they had some other reward tones in there just to you know give them an idea just as a control for their study 
And what they did after training these bats with these tones, they, they basically would play the tone and would give them a reward if the bats investigated that tone. So with, with this way, with rewarding them with some fish, if they went to the speaker every time they heard that sound, well, they would actually, you know, learn the association of this sound and food. And if they heard the non-reward sound and went to the speaker, they wouldn't get any food at all. So that method they used to train these 49 wild bats to recognize tones and recognize one associating them with food. Then, after that training exercise, they let them go back into Panama's Soperina National Park. Then, over time, the researchers, with their microchip tagging, tracked these bats' journeys, and when they encountered them or recaptured them between one to four years later, they went to these eight of the recaptured trained bats and played them the experimental tones again. What they found really interesting is the bats recognized and responded to the two rewarding ring tones that they'd heard, the incoming text alert or the sound of a car beep. This is a pretty incredible result because in some cases, this was like four years later, the bats still remembered that sound and remembered that it would be one to, you know, get some good food with. So they responded positively and remembered correctly that that sound meant food. As a control for this experiment, they actually had 17 untrained frog-eating bats, and these bats just twitched their ears attentively when they heard strange noises, but didn't actually go and investigate, or they weren't trained to investigate and respond to any of those sounds. So they had that there as a baseline, and they saw that even after four years, so these eight bats that they managed to re-pick back up and, and test again, still remembered that the certain tones meant food. Now, the interesting part of the study in particular is what happened when they played the non-rewarding tones, because the bats remembered it, and six out of the eight bats actually started to approach and investigate these non-reward tones. And as Dixon points out, it's possible that they remembered the extinguished sound, but enough time had gone by that they thought, oh, maybe to check it out once more. It's possible that they couldn't remember the exact difference between the ringtones and the extinguished sound was close enough to the reward one, so they decided to check that out too, in the case of generalized memory. Now, that was a pretty interesting insight to come from this study, and to confirm that they weren't just responding to every sound, they played like just pure tone, and most of the bats just twitched in response, so they didn't actually investigate that. So they did see clearly some memory, even though it was hazy in these non-reward tones, which makes sense for the trained bats, you know. I heard this sound, it was weird, and I know I've heard it before somewhere, wasn't quite sure if it was food, better go check it out just in case. You can see how that rationale would make sense for the bats. Now, what it shows here is the bats' ability to form short-term associations and long-term ones that even after recapture, they can still respond to. And the thing is, long-term memory studies like this are really hard because they just take a lot of time. And you need dedicated research facilities like the Bat Lab run by the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute, which the author of this paper, M.A. Dixon, and authors like Rachel Page were also involved in. But to keep tracking and studying these bats over a long period of time isn't easy. But it is possible to show and learn a lot of interesting things about the way creatures in the animal kingdom remember and process all the signals that have bombarded them constantly in an auditory setting. And bats are a great case, again, because they rely on auditory so much to find their food and navigate the world that they're in. It's a great paper published in the journal Current Biology with lead author M.A. Dixon on how bats can have long-term memories of particular sounds and tones. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. 
Bat's ability to process sound and form long-term memories, as well as the way music and just noise can be tracked to help release pain reception in mice. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.